Today we have a fascinating conversation with Professor Pedro Domingos. Um, remember, if you like content like this, consider hitting the subscribe button and rate us on Apple Podcasts. By the way, um, our friend Pedro has written this book called The Master Algorithm. I highly recommend you buy yourself a copy. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, actually, I think we're going to consider making some content on this book. So if that's something that interests you, let us know. Um, yeah, anyway, enjoy the show. How are you, sir? Yo. Good. How are you? We are very good. We're good um, to see you again. Yeah, good to see you. How's life? Yeah. Life is good as much as possible in these troubled times. <laughs> yes, I know exactly what you mean. Right. So um, I'll tell you what, um, could you just give us a quick piece on your book, The Master Algorithm? The Master Algorithm is in, it's an introduction to machine learning for a broad audience. I decided to write it because I realized that we were at the point where everybody needs to know machine learning, not just the specialists. You know, as a private citizen, as a decision maker, you need to know not the mechanical depths of, of how things work, but have a conceptual model of what a machine learning system is doing. And so I wrote a book covering the main styles of machine learning and also what its main um, consequences in the world today were at the time and in the future, the future being now. And a lot of that that I talked about in the book is in progress, even in ways beyond what I imagined. So. I'm curious about that. So, um, uh, and not that I disagree at all. Why, why do you think it's important for kind of like the general, the general population really to understand machine learning and like, like what do they need to understand about it? Exactly. As I said, they don't need to understand, you know, LBFTS and stochastic gradient descent. They, uh, you know, here's an analogy that I, that I've often used. You don't need to know how the engine of a car works. Uh, that's for the mechanics and the mechanical engineers, but you do need to know how the steering wheel and the pedals work. Otherwise you're not going anywhere. And in a way, machine learning today is like a car that arrives at your door and says, I'll take you where you want. Could I trust Could you. I push back on that a little bit? We spoke to Melanie Mitchell and she was talking about the four fallacies in AI and, you know, things like, um, uh, there was the first step fallacy. So, you know, assuming that we're on a continuum to artificial general intelligence and the lure of wistful um, uh, mnemonics was another one, I think, and also that AI should actually be embodied. And, you know, just to push back on what you said a little bit, um, well, even actually some people think that statistics and artificial general intelligence are somewhat synonymous, right? So you kind of do need to know a little <laughs> bit what's going on, right? No, uh, I mean, look, okay, so let's dig down to a slightly finer level, right? You need to understand it at different levels for different things, right? But there's even the most, let's just start at the most basic level, right? Is that I saw a lot of people and I still see, including CEOs, making decisions about machine learning that are very costly because they haven't a clue what machine learning is. And, and you know, related to that example, there's a whole galaxy of misconceptions about machine learning and AI more broadly with which it's conflated these days, of course, improperly, which is confusing artificial intelligence with human intelligence. And I want to, you know, I, I hope that, you know, people who read the book will gain a few things. One of them is that they will never have that illusion again, that AI is like human intelligence. It may be right again, I cover that some, some, some many strengths in AI are, are come out of psychology and I think that's good, but fundamentally to give you the technical definition, right? AI is solving NP complete problems using heuristics. 
which is a very different notion from what you see in the press and the people talking about, you know, Terminator and AI bias and whatnot, right? There, there's this expression that I really like, which is the homunculus fallacy. I don't know if you heard this. The homunculus fallacy is the fallacy that inside every AI system, there's a little man pulling the strings. It, it ain't like that. And then for us, it's funny, but for a lot of people, it's that they, they, that's the mental model that they have because they've never been given a better one. Right. So, you know, to answer your question more directly, think so as, as, as an individual, right, you need to realize that you're interacting with computer systems all the time that are making decisions on your behalf that are guided by machine learning. And, and at that level, you don't, you know, you can even just have you know, imagine that all it's doing is logistic regression or naive base, right? At that level, it's enough because there's these attributes that's making predictions about you based on correlations between these attributes. This captures absolute machine learning, but is already, you know, important for people to know. But then as a professional, for example, I think one of the most important things that like your use of machine learning as a professional can go all the way from being, you know, a hotshot machine learning PhD who knows all kinds of math and logic and statistics and optimization and whatnot to someone who uses AI tools without knowing the AI inside them. Of course, that's not ideal, but in between these two extremes of the spectrum, there's many different levels hmm. of understanding. For example, you should be able to build models. This is something that I've worked on a lot because I think it's really important. It's like you should be able to build, that is what Markov logic is for. You should be able to build models of your domain, whatever it is, combining data with all your expertise without having to understand the gory details of how machine learning works. You need a language in which you express what you know and in which you interact with the AI. So you should be able to teach the AI, right? And you're right, at this level, you start to need more than just is the steering wheel and the pedals, but you know, you have to start at the beginning. Maybe you could clarify a bit for me, the audience, the intended audience of the book, because I can certainly see some segment of the population um, you know, or expanding, let's say, the population segment of population that can understand some of those concepts. But on the other hand, you know, we have many, a long, long history of, of lots of people misunderstanding very basic concepts like correlation is not causation, you know, for example. And especially when you get into probability theory, you know, there are prominent examples of of even mathematicians and certainly scientists and, and for example, medical, medical doctors that it's just not intuitive to get a lot of the concepts in probability theory. And so what about that? I mean, is the hope that we can somehow break through that, that barrier, or is it more you're targeting, let's say, uh, say an engineer who needs to learn something about machine learning in order to, like you're saying, build models that can help them at work. I'm actually targeting all of the above. And in fact, uh, I think a lot of the art of writing a book for a general audience, and I really looked into this with examples from, you know, positive and negative examples of this, you know, before I wrote the book, you, if you can at all, you should try to write a book that works at multiple levels. Someone should be able to read the book superficially and many people have and, and get something out of it. But that was definitely not just what I was shooting for. I was actually very determined to actually have a serious coverage of essentially all of machine learning at a certain level of abstraction, of course, but like, you got to come out of that book. Again, one of my pet peeves has been that like people learn type A of machine learning. This is it's deep learning, but it could be kernel machines or, you know, Bayesian learning or whatever, you know, in school because they were taught randomly by the people who were of that persuasion. And then they think that's all there is. And then they go through their life, applying their hammer 
to everything that now, of course, looks like a nail. And that's, that's very costly, right? So I also want to, you know, if you, I mean, if, if I had to say like, at the end of the day, who were the people who most, most enjoyed the book? They were actually people who have some technical background, <laughs> but are from other fields, right? Because there's like, you know, there's a lot of, you know, real math and engineering and stuff in science in that book, kind of like stated in a way that's accessible. But if you know that you actually, you know, you, you feel it and, and you like seeing the connections made. And, and again, I, you know, I, I said that in the introduction to the book, even if you're a machine learning pro, I hope that you will learn a lot of things from this book. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of people have now, who are the people who have most benefited from reading the book? I think it's like, uh, you know, it's the CEO, you know, like there was this book that I think George Miller wrote many years ago called physics for future presidents. <laughs> it's like, you know, if you're going to be the president of the United States, you don't need the PhD in physics, but you even need charge of a nuclear arsenal and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, there's some things that maybe you ought to know. And, and you know, like one of my, you know, cluster of, you know, clusters of audiences for the book was like the CEOs. And indeed, I mean, I know countless CEOs who really like the book, right? And, and have told me so, because they needed, they needed to catch up on machine learning like badly. And this, they're not going to read the textbook. So it was a godsend for them. You know, just to give an example, Jensen Wang, right? The CEO of NVIDIA, right? This happened at the time that he was pivoting, you know, from gaming to AI. He told everybody at the company to read the book, period. And they did. Wow. Amazing. Cool. You know, NVIDIA were coming up to me saying like, oh, you know, I read this and I like this and I have this question. So, you know, these are all parts of the audience for the book. Could I pick you up on, on a couple of things? So I'm, I'm very interested in, um, you know, I said about Melanie Mitchell's uh, lure of wishful mnemonics and anthropomorphization, because I think you, you resent the anthropomorphization of these machine learning algorithms. And your recent paper actually kind of showed that there, there was a, a, a kind of an analogy between many of these machine learning algorithms. And, that, and that's why I want to take a step back, because you could see uh, many of the empirical and statistical approaches to AI as being somewhat analogous. And and there are some very divergent conceptions of what AI is. You know, we spoke about the um, uh, embodiment, for example, but psychologists separate the mind from the brain and there are um, emergentists, for example. Um, do you think there's any value in conceptualizing? Well, I mean, sorry, just to go back to the beginning, um, we, you were saying that people didn't really have any deep understanding of what's going on, but the level of abstraction is important. Your frame of reference to understand this is important, right? Well, I mean, to, you said the word there that kind of pricked up my ears. It's not that there's an analogy between these different approaches. It's much deeper than that, right? The paper that you just referred to, it's actually showing that every model learned by gradient descent is a kernel machine. So maybe at the end of the day, all the machine learning that we've been doing prominently including deep learning is just kernel machines. So as much as I want people to learn the full spectrum, the, you know, the variety of machine learning algorithms, I don't want it to be a collection of stamps. That's not good science. And in fact, the story of the book, right, is that there's the five tribes of machine learning, you know, the Bayesians, the connectionists, the symbolists, etc., And, and then we visit them and learn their way of doing things and their wisdom. But then the, the, the goal of this whole process is to find the master algorithm. Right. And there's a chapter in the book where we put these things together and there is a master algorithm. And in fact, that chapter has held up very well. And this paper that you just talked about is another step in that direction. So I think when all is said and done, right, we, we do, you know, um, machine learning is not a hammer. 
And it's better to have a Swiss Army knife, right? But a Swiss Army knife is still five tools jammed into one. Right. I think I think what we're going to understand is that at some deeper level, all these things are really just, you know, variations on the same theme. Right. Think of different regimes of the same equation. But, but right? that's, that's, I think, where we're going to. On, on that, though, if we spoke to a symbolist, they would say, yeah, all of those machine learning algorithms are the same. And um, if we spoke to an emergentist, that would be a completely, I mean, we spoke to um, Ben Gertzel, for example, he's a great example of an emergentist and also um, right. uh, Jeff Hawkins as well. But no, there, there are some completely different frames of reference here. And you could, you could quite easily just conflate all of the machine learning empirical approaches and just say they're all different sides of the same coin, right? Well, I mean, so this is what I love about it is that, so first of all, there are people who don't believe in this idea. Right. You know, the quintessential example is, is Marvin Minsky, right? Marvin Minsky's whole theory of, of mind is that it's one damn thing after another. There is no unified theory of the mind, right? I mean, I, I don't know if you read the Society of Mind, but it's literally 200 chapters. It's about, you know, one of 200 different things, right? And, and I understand that, but you know, so there's, so there's the, there's people for whom, you know, what I say the master algorithm in that chapter doesn't make sense. Right. And I respect their opinion, but the, the fun part is that of the people who do believe in the master algorithm and actually think that deep down almost all machine learning people believe in it because the, you know like the point of machine learning and this is how i start the book right is to have algorithms that can learn anything that's the magic of it it's like it's a general algorithm it's like the master key that's where the name comes from that opens all locks right but then the thing that's kind of like hilarious almost to me is that like the the hardest core believers in any in every one of these schools and you know rich sutton with reinforcement learning and jeff hawkins with this theory they do believe that all algorithms are the same, namely theirs. <laughs> That's right. But part of what I explained the in the book is like, like, no, 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 it doesn't work, right? I, I say that like there's these five major problems in, in, in machine learning that in AI that you have to solve. And these different algorithms are very good for solving different ones of those. For example, the symbolists are the ones who can learn composable knowledge, you know, backprops, solves credit assignment. But you know what you got to realize, and I give examples of this in domains like, you know, robotics and fighting cancer and whatnot, like you have to solve all five. So if all you have is back prop, you're deluding yourself. That back prop is going to, you know, I have this ongoing argument with Jan Lacoon where he says that like, you know, AI is going to be solved by gradient descent. It's all gradient descent. You know, you either do gradient descent or gradient free optimization and gradient free optimization is hopeless inefficient. So ergo, you know, AI is going to be solved by gradient descent, which to me just sounds, I mean. I, I really respect Jan and, you know, I agree with him on a lot of things, but on this one, I just can't fathom his blind faith in backprops. So th there's a lot of this in, in AI and the book is definitely confronting that head on. Yeah. I mean, we're so interested in open-endedness and we, we love Kenneth Stanley and he gave some examples of um, some, you know, open-ended algorithms that beat uh, gradient-based reinforcement learning agents. And because a lot of people say, well, evolutionary algorithms are rubbish, right? Because they're not principled. You have this uh, random mutation and it's not principled. But demonstrably... I mean, yeah. uh, uh, all the evolutionary algorithms, right? I have a chapter in the... So they're one of the tribes, right? The, the evolutionaries. Mm -hmm. and, and many people in machine learning, when they saw the book, said like, oh, why do you have a, a chapter about this? Nobody does it anymore. It's not machine learning. I'm like, there's a whole big conference dedicated to this. And they're growing as well. And, and uh, I mean, it's not in principle, right? Again, you can debate the ins and outs of this, but I do believe there's a lot to come from looking at that. I think the problem is that we do not understand evolution well enough yet. Right? Yeah. We have a cartoon of evolution. Exactly. And that's why we're not doing it better. 
but we need to work with evolutionary biologists and the people who do evolutionary game theory and all that. And I think very important things will come out of that. Same on the optimization side. And like, you know, we do not understand the brain well enough. And, you know, and when we do, we'll think that the idea that the brain learns by gradient descent is a joke. I mean, like the only part of the brain that even remotely looks like it could be run by backprop is the cerebellum, right? There is a certain similarity between the cerebellum and, and, you know, and, and backprop, not the cortex as Jeff Hawkins will tell you, or probably told you in gory detail, but even there, right? The most notable thing about the cerebellum, which is for learning mainly motor skills is that once you learn a skill, you never lose it again, right? You learn to ride a bike when you're six and it's with you forever. Even if you don't ride a bike for 40 years, contrast that with the catastrophic forgetting that is the signature problem of backpop. So, you know, we're very far from understanding how these things work. So we need to understand them better. And then we need to, you know, bring those ideas to AI as we have very successfully in the past. And also I think those fields would benefit from the ideas that we come up with in AI, right? You know, I like psychology, I like evolution and whatnot, but at the end of the day, it's so much more satisfying to be an AI researcher because you get to make progress so much faster with computers than, than with doing experiments with people or, you know, or things like that. I, I know there are so many fascinating um, things to, to pick up on there. Jeff Hawkins is well, looking well, hold into... Hold on, before, bef before we leave that topic, I, I wanted to bring up something specifically about learning from the, uh, the brain. I wonder if you're familiar with um, uh, Blake Richards at all mm -hmm. in his in his work about you know the neocortical sort of microcircuits and and pyramidal you know neurons and what was interesting about a presentation I saw him give is is he was asking the question okay we pretty much know the brain can't implement gradient descent you know biologically the way it is but what they figured out is that it appears to implement something that's like a stochastic kind of you know version of of gradient descent and I think exactly what what you're pointing out here is that we can learn a lot from that, you know? So there are some, there are some ways in which that stochastic sort of gradient descent can actually outperform gradient descent. And they're doing experiments on that. And it's worth um, at least exploring, right? Like what the biology is doing. I mean, it's definitely exploring and I sympathize, but, um, I mean, first of all, stochastic gradient descent is what everybody uses for everything. No, but no, I'm not more, talking about it. Yeah, it's, it's different. Yeah, I mean, from, I understand, yeah, yeah. but like my, um, feeling about the work of people like Blake Richards is that they are trying too hard to make the brain fit what we think is learning coming from an ML point of view, right? I've seen this, you know, happen, you know, it's like people, the brain is so complex that it manages to look like anything we want it to look like. And people, you know, Yosha Benjo is another example, right? Like they, they, they've come up with, with, with many ways of trying to say like, well, but this is how the brain really does backprop. My feeling, and it's just a feeling, is that the brain just doesn't do backprop. It does predictive coding. Predictive coding, I think, is a very important idea. And, you know, if I had to guess, looking forward, you know, when we understand how the cortex learns, it will be predictive coding. Again, our understanding, predictive coding is an old idea. In fact, there's a lot of new confirmation of predictive coding coming out of the neuroscience, which I think is very exciting. Not enough to change. The, the, the other problem is that the neuroscience under constraints the algorithms. Uh, we don't know enough to decide what your algorithm is going to be, right? So the, it's a very, you know, uh, leaky interface between the two sides. But if I had to, which doesn't mean it's not worth it, but at the end of the day, neuroscience does not, at this point does not so much constrain you as maybe give you inspirations. And I think to my intuition, predictive coding is actually how we really learn. And again, what we do is we do predictive coding and then we remember 
You know, in machine learning, we have this unfortunate distinction between memory and learning. You know, if you remember things are overfitting. But again, if you co- if you go back to this notion of like that we talked about about you know a gradient descent l- learning kernel machines, right? What it's really doing is remembering the examples, except very efficiently in a superposed way, right? I think this combination of predictive coding and superposition. My guess is this this is it, this is not the whole story, but this is really a core part of how the brain learns. Now, you can take any function, right, and that I'm optimizing, right, and as long as it's continuous. And say that, well, you know, uh, this is take whatever differential equ- equation your system obeys, and you say, like, oh, you know, this is graded descent on something, right? right? You can always, you know, if you have a function, you can always think about its integral, its derivative, right? The question is, is that helpful? Sometimes it's helpful, sometimes it's not. And again, my feeling, I can't prove this, but I mean, there's a lot of work that I think is pointing in this direction, is that. Don't think about gradient descent. That's actually the wrong way to think about it. Think about the differential equation that, that your system is following, right? It's, it's descending the gradient of the loss, right? But it's a differential equation, right? And the fact that that was the gradient of something is actually secondary. Another question that we should be asking is like, why is this the differential equation that, you know, a, an intelligent brain uses? I think the real differential equation is going to be even staying in, you know, continuous land, which you can, right? is going to be something much more interesting. And I don't think it's going to be anything humongously complex. It's going to be more complex than gradient descent, but it's going to have a much more interesting and more powerful dynamics. The thing about it is that like, as a dynamics for learning, gradient descent is kind of very limited. In fact, I, you know, I said this thing to Jan on Twitter, not, not to Jan, I said this thing on Twitter that Jan then replied to uh, a little defensively, and it was just this. People who believe that intelligence will be solved, you know, by gradient descent need to explain how scientists do scientific discovery using nothing but gradient descent. Right? And I mean, I, I think this sentence alone makes it right. obvious that, that it's not all just gradient descent, right? Like they're not even using gradient descent, let alone it's all gradient descent. Right. Could, could I um, ask you a little bit about that? So um, we're speaking with Numenta, by the way, and they've really leaned into Ooh. sparsity. And we've spoken to Jonathan Frankel, the lottery uh, lottery ticket hypothesis. And, you know, for neural networks to use gradient descent, gradient descent has to work, right? So it turns out gradient descent works much better um, on, on dense MLPs. And actually, most of the architectural tweaks in neural networks are to make the optimization more amenable to gradient descent but sparsity is interesting isn't it because the representation is much more robust when you sparsify the network because you kind of tell it to forget about all of the low frequency instances um so are we in a bit of a catch-22 where we can't train the things you know um into a sparse network directly well so um I mean, I agree with you. So gradient descent works, right? And I have nothing against gradient descent. I, I use it myself all the time, right? And I've even written papers too on like, you know, improving gradient descent for certain, you know, representations like some prod networks that, that, that we've developed and whatnot. But, but you're right. The thing is that a lot of the work people do today is shoehorning everything to make life possible for gradient descent. And this at the end of the day is actually very harmful, right? We are real. I mean, I think. When people look back 20 years from now, if they even bother to, they're going to be horrified at, at, at these Byzantine concoctions of learning these, you know, bazillions of parameters, 99.9% of which were redundant, right? But why do we need them? Because we need them to make life easy for gradient descent. Right. Now, sparsity is a very important idea for many reasons. One of them is that 
energy consumption is the number one constraint on what the brain does. Your brain, even at rest, consumes a quarter of your energy, right? This is mind boggling, right? It's in fact, apparently, you know, you know, cows have much more powerful digestive systems than humans have. And, but we have to give up on that in order to free up energy for the brain. So, you know, we have a different ecological niche, right? But the point is that like energy consumption is, is really, really a strong constraint. And we forgot that during the first 50 years of AI. Now it's coming back for different reasons because of data centers and, and mobile and whatnot. But, but sparsity, I mean, if you talk, you know, like when I talk to Jeff Dean, one of the things that he's always saying is that like, we need sparser networks. I'm like, what is your wish list? The number one is we don't want this whole network to be on at the same time, right? We want just a small amount, and which is what happens with your brain, right? Most of your brain isn't on most of the time. And same with the connections, right? So, so I think there's a lot to be done there. Now, to me, the most ironic part of all of this is that people now forget that, you know, deep learning, the modern age of deep learning starting circa 2002, three, had three phases. The first phase was, was the, you know, the, the, the pre-training, right? I remember when Jeff Hinton was, you know, this was the thing, right? And that, you know, that did some things like, you know, it was good for speech and whatnot. But then there was a phase that no lies forgotten that was all about sparsity. It was sparse coding all the way. I remember talking with Andrew Ng, you know, at, well, like maybe the second deep learning workshop when there were only 50 of us. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, hard to remember that now, but we all fit in a room with the forces around it. And, and Andrew was very gung-ho. And he said, like at the panel at the end, something like, um, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but like, you know, we're going to solve AI now in no time, right? I'm exaggerating a little bit, but that was the spirit of what he was saying. And, and then at the end of it, you know, I asked him, you know, right after, I was like, so, wow, you know, tell me, how, how are we about to solve AI? And you know what his answer was? I, I think he would be embarrassed to hear this now, but like his answer was, well, we now know how V1 works. V1 is sparse coding. And all the brain uses the same algorithm. Therefore, we know how the brain works. That's kind of like the uh, the thousand brains perspective. Um, I mean, he was influenced by Jeff Hawkins. I don't know if you no, know this. I, I, I quoted him in the show. He, right. he said yeah. that Jeff convinced yeah. him in his first book on intelligence that um, human level general intelligence could be explained by a single learning algorithm. And, and yeah. Indeed, right? Like, in, And in fact, the master algorithm's first working title was the one algorithm, right? So we're really all in the same wavelength here. But my point was that there was a point at which sparsity was the deep learning thing. And then, and then of course, AlexNet happened and we're in the age of AlexNet still, right? Where on the contrary, we learned these massively dense, redundant, over-parameterized things because right. we, got, we got GPUs to learn them, right? I mean, G GPUs in a way are like this joker in the deck of AI that scrambled everything, right? I mean, GPUs just gave an unfair advantage to a particular set of techniques. Right, right. Yeah. The machine the machine lottery. But just to close the loop on that, th these models are not trainable without um, starting from a dense model, as far as I'm aware. Even the sparsification algorithms, usually they they start with a dense model and then they prune and prune and prune. It's, it, SGD just doesn't seem to work without a dense model. No, no, no. Well, so there's a, there's a couple of different things here. Um, you have to distinguish sparsity at learning time with sparsity at performance time. Google, for example, really cares about sparsity at performance time because they pay the electricity bill. Seriously, right. right? If you necessarily, I mean, like, I, I, I ha if I had to guess, like, uh, and it's not completely a guess, 
the great majority of Google's entire electricity bill these days consists of running deep learning algorithms. <laughs> right? Their electricity bill is all those redundant connections, right? So yes, you can, it's uh, the same thing with, 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 uh, with, you know, systems on the edge, right? Which are very popular. Like, you know, like, you know, Google has, you know, the latest, you know, Android phones have, have TPUs in them. This so, is how far we've gotten, right? And, you know, like, and a colleague of mine just sold his company to Apple. Uh, and, and what it does is it sparsifies networks down to like, you know, one bit per weight. And then they still, they still, they work a little bit worse, but still well enough, right? So right. this kind of performance time sparsity is very important, right? Now you're talking about learning time sparsity, right? Learning time sparsity is not as important. And the thing there is that if you follow the, again, there's learning inspired by the brain and there's the connections paradigm, which is actually a very impoverished version of learning by the, the connections paradigm is like your structure learning is learned. There is no structure learning. Therefore you have to start out with a redundant structure because that's all you can do. And now if you ask the symbolists, they'll, they'll pull their head out of this because like we can do discrete search. We don't need to do that. Right. We can, we can, we can do architecture search. And again, I do that all the time as well. And it's ridiculous not to, but it's again, there's this, I don't want to say ideological, but there's like, what I've noticed is that the deep learning people don't like the idea of learning structure. It's like, it doesn't right. agree with them because they have this like the brain. And then you talk to evolutionaries and they're like, ah, then you're just tuning parameters. The real learning is discovering the structure of the brain. So structure learning, in my view, is an essential part of the master algorithm. And then, you know, you can be as sparse as you want at learning time. In fact, when you learn a vision network, you know, or, or a rule of set, a set of, uh, of rules, typically you start out from zero, the null model, right? So why not do that? There's nothing wrong with doing that. Well, cause you can't, if you don't invent the structure yourself, you can't give it a cool name like horseshoe or, you know, something like that. It has nice symmetric shape, but I, I want to come back to, um, your predictive coding point, which is that, um, Bengio, uh, Yashua Bengio has, has frequently been talking about the importance of simulating like the world models. And for example, we've been looking at his, um, G flow net, uh, paper lately, which, which also hits upon the energy thing. You know, how can I simulate possible worlds efficiently? Um, and, and with some tricks, you know, to make it better than just say MCMC. I'm wondering if you can talk some about one, the connection between predictive coding and really the simulation of, of world models as a, as a core component of, um, of learning really, at least the way humans do it. And also any comments you have on, uh, on Bengio's, um, recent work. So, yeah, so I definitely believe at a certain level, at least in this idea of simulating the world and it's inextricably tied with predictive coding, right? Predictive coding is you have a model of the world, you predict using it, and then it's the errors that are the signal that gets propagated. Among other things, this is very efficient energetically because it means, and again, there are decades of psychology showing that like what, you know, what your brain is doing actually starts at the retina is like, you're just throwing out all the information that you can throw out. Right. And you can throw it out because you have a model of the world. In fact, the whole point of memory and mm -hmm. intelligence in ways is to have that model of the world. Right. And if you talk to Gary Marcus, he's always pounding on model of the world. If you talk to Jan Lecun, he's always talking about model of the world. Right. And to take maybe an even better example, if you look at what Josh Tenenbaum's group has been doing, right, for a long time, is this whole idea that, like, you know, I generate the model of the world and then, you know, and that, that's what I use for everything. And then, then, you know, comparing it with predictions that, so at some level, I completely agree with this idea. Okay. But now I think 
in many ways, the ways that different people have been pursuing this, including Yahshua and Josh and whatnot, I'm a little queasy about them because again, come back to the human brain, right? And having a big complicated model of the world is a, is a very costly thing, right? So this idea that what you have is a generative model of the world, right? Hmm. You know, once upon a time, I, I believed in Jared. There's a lot of people who say, and I think Josh is one of those, and, and Jeff Hinton too, in a strange way, right? They, they all believe in generative laws, right? Maybe what Jeff Hinton and Josh Vision call a generative model isn't what you really call it. There's, there's some overloading of vocabulary going on here, but like, but what is a generative model? You know, at least in a formal sense, it's a probability distribution of how the world generates debt. Right? If you're a Bayesian, right? And, and, you know, Josh is a Bayesian, right? These days he, he plays a deep learning person on TV, but you know, deep down, he's very much a Bayesian, right? Is you have a probability distribution from which you generate, you know, can generate samples. Then you can also update that with the data and, you know, and then you get your posterior and whatnot, right? And the problem, this is a very attractive idea, right? And I've had arguments with prominent people in machine learning, less so these days because of deep learning, where they say like, you either doing generative learning, what you're doing is unprincipled. Discriminative learning is unprincipled. Discriminative learning is a hack. Generative learning is what's real, right? And, and I understand, you know, when people are influenced by physics and whatnot, that that's how they will think, but this is wrong. Well, can, right. can I come in on that? Because this is very, this is very analogous to, you know, we were saying before with evolutionary algorithms, oh, it, it's unprincipled. So with Josh Tannenbaum, let's say dream coder, because I know he's done some Bayesian stuff as well, but that's very much a, a neural guided discrete program search. And, and you could argue that, you know, it's a factorial search space, but apparently this neural network makes it a linear search space, but seem, seems a little bit dodgy, doesn't it? But um, what Hinton's doing is he's got this neural network that models instinct. So with AlphaGo, we actually did this Alpha, uh, sorry, this Monte Carlo tree search, and that really is system two, right? I mean, first of all, it's a bit weird that we're modeling it as discrete actions. You're talking about the brain a minute ago, and it seems a bit muddled in my mind to talk about predictive coding and then talk about traversing, a, a, you know, discrete actions. But let's stick with the actions. Now, Hinton doesn't say. Hinton doesn't say that this is reasoning or system two. He thinks that instinct is something completely different, but it's it still should be modeled with a neural network. No, but okay, we, we're bringing in a different set of issues here. Uh, I don't know if you've heard, you know, Danny Kahneman's diatribe against people like Benji talking about system one. And system tell me, two. I'd love to know. Yeah. yeah, he's like, what these people are calling, he says they, you know, again, not to put words in his mouth, but he says they're completely confused, right? What a lot of these deep learning people have been calling system one, system two isn't, right? He, he like, they, they, so, so the cartoon, and this is a powerful cartoon in our community, is that, and I mean, you've heard this many times, is that system one is perception and system two is reasoning. And uh, deep networks are good at, and we've like, we've mastered system one. We got deep learning. System one, we got that down, right? But now, right, to achieve full intelligence, we need models of the world and reasoning and all of that. And that's system two. So now we got to do that as well. And then he kind of unlooked at this and says, like, no, that's not what I meant. The model of the world is system one. You guys haven't even remotely figured system one to begin with. System one is everything you do automatically. Again, I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but this is a better approximation. Like system one is everything you do automatically. Think of everything you do automatically. It's very, in fact, it's because you have a model of the world encoded in your neurons 
that you can do so many powerful things automatically. And then when that doesn't, and system one is with what with you every moment, you know, of the day, when that doesn't work, then you get into this slower, harder search process that we call conscious reasoning. And that's what system two is. So like, you know, we, we haven't figured out system one yet. I wish we had, but that's actually the bigger challenge, right? Is that like, I mean, in many ways you could say that the criticism of symbolic AI is that like, you're trying to build a system two without a system one under, under it, and that's not going to work. And now to get to this question of AlphaGo and instinct, what AlphaGo does, I think is extremely interesting in a way that most people haven't noticed. And that I think is actually quite related to the psychology and to this question of instinct versus search, right? Is that like. People make this distinction between the discrete search and the continuous behavior that is actually not there, right? Like your instinctive behavior is just your compiled explicitly behavior after doing it many times. Again, there's a host of psychology literature that shows this, right? There's a few instincts that you are born with, but that's not what we're talking about is that like, you know, like the chess grandmaster's ability to look at a board and in the tenth of the section, make a move that defeats you after you thinking about it for 15 minutes. What they're doing is actually not fundamentally different. From a computational point of view, they're doing the same process that it's all compiled into their neurons, which is what AlphaGo is doing, right? So it's like, what it's actually doing is like, it's compiling this, you know, Monte Carlo tree search into the value of the neural network, right? And this is good because then, then that, so, so what you do is like, you do, it's, you know, here's a imperfect analogy, but we want to have like, you're compiling macros. What the neural network has is search macros. And that's what instinct is. A lot of instinct is like these macros that you've acquired. You had, you made all those mistakes many times, and now you have learned to instinctively not make them because you know, that's going to lead in a bad direction. So there really is, you know, intelligence is very confusing in that regard because it's so plastic, but a lot of these, a lot of this distinction between system one does this and system two does that. They're actually doing the same thing. They're just doing on different time frames. That's right. So time, time is really the, the key element, I think, at least from what I've seen. And so what's wrong with, if I think of system one is any calculation that you can do in a single forward pass and like some relatively small number of, of layers, whereas system two is, is something you can do computationally, like say on a Turing machine, given more time iteratively, is that like kind of an okay breakdown? It's not quite. I mean, I sympathize, but here's the thing is, is, um, you can paralyze, right? T take that. I mean, the Turing machine covers both of us, right? And the Turing machine is a sequential process, but I can say, I'm going to start paralyzing. And that's a lot of what your brain is that it's massively parallelism, number one, but number two, there's the role of learning, right? What learning is doing is like, I mean, think of proving a theorem, right? It's like, it's a quintessential symbolic reasoning task, right? It's the series of discrete steps. And there's a very large search based, like, you know, which axiom, which inference rule do I apply now? But what a good mathematician has is that that's not how their brain works. They have all these structures compiled into their brain and all these analogies. Like they look at the form of something that's like, oh, this is like that form that I saw before. And if I tweak this, right, this is what you do, right? So the same. The exact same thing that can be done sequentially can be done, you know, in parallel. But not without can... exponential blow up, right? It's like, sure, you can, you can take an iterative circuit and you can splay it out as a, as a forward pass, but you get an exponential blow up in terms of 
in terms of circuitry. And as you brought up earlier, biology is going to optimize like energetically to avoid that. The exponential blow up is with you in one form or the other. So there's a certain envelope of time and space that you can't get out of. Now you can, and the brain does do that in the support in AI, make trade-offs between spending more time and spending more space. And sometimes reducing one exponential blows up the other, but let's, you know, but the problem, the real problem for us is actually those is like, we, we will take anything, right? Right. We, if we can do anything in non-explanation in any way, we will. But the problem is that you don't make a blob go away, a fundamental blob, if you will, you know, if you didn't do things right, you can, but you don't make a fundamental blob go away by, by shifting from space to time or from time to space. The, the blob is, you know, is always going to be there. Why exactly is the AlphaGo configuration not learning? So having a discrete tree search over a policy, I mean, do, does that imply that Josh Tannenbaum stuff is not learning? Remember how Kasparov was beaten. There was no learning involved, right? And there didn't need to be, right? Uh, I'm, not, the, I'm not sure I follow you. It was, there, was, there was plenty of learning that went into the construction of Deep Blue. No, I mean, so we're talking about thought, different rather. No, 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 no. There was no machine learning. Well, so, sorry, can, can, can you, because it seems like a dichotomy, you know, searching and learning. Can, can you explain the continuum between that dichotomy? Yes. So, uh, you know, playing games is a good example, right? So I teach students in a class to play games with no learning, right? And most of your, you know, PC, you know, just play programs. That's what they do, right? They do zero learning. Right? Meaning their state when they play the next game is, is the same as when they played the previous game. And what they do is they search for moves, right? That this is inference. This is reasoning, right? This again is supposedly what, this is what we feel ourselves doing explicitly when we play chess is like, oh, if I move my pawn here, will you move your rook there? Or will you do this with your queen? Right? That's the discrete search. Okay. So you're saying some right? kind of model or characterization of the problem, which you can optimize it against that's it, learning. It, it doesn't have to be modeled. It's like this. There's a search space, mm -hmm. right? There's a set of all possible states of the board, right? Some states of the board are wins for me. And I want to reach one of those. Okay. And I have my initial states and I have my operators, which are the moves that I could make. And now my choice is just a discrete choice of operators. This is a, this is a discrete problem by nature, right? You can't pretend it's continuous. You can embed it in continuous, blah, blah, blah. Like it's a discrete problem because you have a discrete chance of choices, which is like, which move do I make? Where do I put my piece on the board and go to the center, right? And now the problem, right, is that there's an, is the exponential blow up that we were just talking about. If there wasn't an exponential blow up, right, you know, as in tic-tac-toe, you know, it's too small, right? You could just have a table that tells you how to play, right? So in a way, the whole, the whole AI is all about where the table gets too large, right? Yeah, but right? Um, the, discrete problems are learnable though. Right. So, so it's not the discreteness that's, that's of concern here. No, but again, there's two parts here. In every learning system, there's the learning component and there's the performance component, mm -hmm. right? The performance component is driving the car, is playing the game, is the thing that actually does the task that you want. The performance component is what we build when we write programs, right? And in a classic AI game playing system, the performance component is doing a search over moves, right? Now, machine learning is actually, in a way, all of learning is a meta search. What it's doing is creating a performance component, right? You have a search over performance components, over what networks to have, or over what sets of rules to have, 
over what heuristics are traditional in-game playing, and actually in, in a way still in, 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 in AlphaGo, the main place where the machine learning comes in is in evaluating the board for how good it looks, right? And this is, you know, the traditional AI way to solve the screen search problems is with heuristics. And the heuristic is saying like, oh, this moves looks, you know, you rate the move as to how good it looks, right? And there's this traditional ones like peace advantage control of the center. And Arthur Samuels, you know, when he coined the term machine learning, it was with the checkers playing program. And what he was learning was very ahead of his time, right? By, by self-play, just like DeepMind, was the weights, all these different factors in the evaluation function, right? So he had the whole performance system that did search that blah, blah, blah. And there was one thing that was being learned, which was the weight of, you know, control of the center versus piece of advantage versus something else, right? Now, of course, these days you can learn every part of this, but the learning can be continuous while the performance system is discrete. And definitely the learning and the performance system are very different. Again, this is another confusion that I think bedevils a lot of discussions of machine learning and AI is that people conflate the machine learning algorithm with the learned model. Right. That's they why are different things. They are just completely different things that we, we're guilty because, you know, we call a classifier a system that learns a classifier, right? So we, we have fostered that confusion, right? Which was okay when it was, you know, 500 of us, you know, in an obscure field, but not anymore, right? So we got to make that distinction between the learning component and the performance component. And either of them could be discrete or continuous. And, and both of them in AI usually involve a search, but they search is over different things. So, so the Monte Carlo tree search that is, is like Monte Carlo tree search is just your quintessential classic symbolic AI inference process, search process, right? which you could do with no learning whatsoever. But of course, what makes it powerful is that there's a, a neural network that is there's really sucking up the result of doing a lot of this search so that you don't have to do it anymore. You can do it in one step. And this to me sounds a lot like what psychology shows us the human brain does. Again, back to the discriminative models, you know, versus uh, generative and um, kind of the conversation around GFlowNet and where you said a lot of people maybe are going wrong in the direction is thinking that the model needs to be complex enough and accurate enough to generate real world uh, examples where it doesn't necessarily need to be able to do that. It just needs to be able to discriminate. But, but on the other hand, I, I think there is this, this notion that the brain is doing this kind of simulation. So I at least know I do that. I game out scenarios. What if this happens, that happens. So what's producing those those um samples or those possible world world models and if you could just talk more about this distinction and and what you think yeah. of, of say gflow nets or yeah. similar yeah this is absolutely exactly the, this is a crucial question in, in 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 my view and here's the thing is that if you can have a generative model of the world that's accurate you're in great shape right but the problem is that and the problem with a capital P is that a full generative model of the world is just impossibly costly in memory, in energy, in inference time, it's just infeasible. So you can, you know, stamp your foot and say like, you got to be principal, but you'll die while, while everything else survives. We got it. And, and the idea of discriminative learning, and I mean, I totally understand where this comes from. And I used to kind of like sympathize with this back when I was a grad student and then I learned better, right? Is that. In a way, a lot of people, you know, even out in science, right? Machine learning is now, you know, penetrating every science. And there's like often this like, you know, reaction of dislike because, you know, machine learning is like this. Oh, you gather a bunch of features and then you do great descent on them and you hack and you hack and you hack. 
And then I do better than the scientists. And the scientists get really frustrated with this because it's like, you're just hacking. You don't have any fundamental understanding of the process that generates this data, the phenomenon, the generative model, right? When we, and then they think that this is all that machine learning is. And then I tell them, no, there's this part of machine learning that deals with generative models and blah, blah, blah. And then, and then they start to smile and they start to get closer to nirvana, right? So I understand, right, that the scientific impulse to model things properly as opposed to just hack a bunch of stuff, right? But here's the thing. You know, we are a part of evolution and, 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 and our artifacts are we also doing evolution, right? And in evolution, the supreme rule of the universe is whatever works. And, you know, a fly has a discriminative model of the world because that's all it needs. Putting a generative model of the world on a fly would be stupid. That fly would die and the others would live. Now, where this, right? So, and the same thing in AI, right? Like, we had 50 years of low progress in AI until people in machine learning said, what we're going to do is set all this aside and start learning on real data from day one. And we're going to measure accuracy on real data, right? And that led to a lot of hacking, but those, that, that also led to where we are today. Now, you, now, now we come to your question. So this is why, in some sense, discriminative learning is actually better founded, more, more fundamental than generative learning, right? But now we come to a very important question like, what about the simulation that I'm doing and you're doing and we all know we do and it's so powerful and, 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 and predictive coding requires, right? So I think that what happens is that as your brain gets more powerful and you have a more powerful sensorium because your ecological niche, you know, calls for it, say humans, like once you have more powerful vision and, and, and a wider range of behaviors that blah, 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 then you're, and I, I I've also observed this happening in my own research in AI, which kind of, you know, is interesting, right? And a lot of people are like, then your discriminative models start to get more and more powerful, more and more flexible, and, and you start to discover more and more general things. So a generative model is, some, is what a discriminative model evolves into once it gets sufficiently powerful and flexible, right? You want to start to detect these invariants, another very important idea. And as you detect more and more invariants, you start to have something that's more and more like generative model. No, but now at the end of the day, what you have in your brain and what you have in predictive coding, we have this illusion that it's a complete generative model of the world, but it isn't, mm -hmm. right? All of the facts and things where you just learn and apply the things that you need to in order to guide your action. Predictive coding does not exist for its own sake. It exists to guide your action. So any part of your sensorum of the world model that's not needed to guide your action goes out because it's mm -hmm, yeah. wasting the energy and making you less fit. I, I, I appreciate that you said that um, generative models are very costly, but there are many folks in the space, I mean, like Max Welling, for example, that, that really say we need to have generative models. But the thing is, we know, I don't know um, whether you saw our latest episode with Lacoon, but uh, Randall Balistrerio um, had this spline theory of neural networks, which basically says that neural networks don't extrapolate in the sense of continuing the pattern they kind of are interpolators so presumably these generative models are very convergent they don't really um, extrapolate outside of the training distribution but, but just to finish this point so um, what we really need to have if we are using our imagination is genuine extrapolation and I think what Benjo is doing with this GFlow nets is rather than picking the uh, most likely reward trajectory he's kind of deliberately um, disadvantaging it uh, on average by you know kind of allowing Allowing it to sample um, lower likelihood but higher entropy, um, you know, trajectories that would give you more information gain. But there's something really fundamental there, isn't there, about being able to explore um, the unknown, not just the things that we know about. 
I mean, absolutely. So there's a couple of points here. One is that I'm not arguing against genetic models, if you notice, right? I'm arguing against properly understanding how they emerge and what their role is. We shouldn't be prematurely trying to learn generative models in situations where they don't make sense. At the end of the day, your brain does have a very powerful generative model of the world, right? It is, it is able to generate, you know, dreams and, and like, it's able to generate, you know, the features that it then, you know, compares with the world by, by uh, predictive coding. So I, you know, I, again, I'm not arguing against generative model, modeling. I'm arguing against understanding it properly and doing it properly. Now, what does that mean? Right. And, and this is where this. So what a lot of people, I think, including Yoshua are trying to do is actually what, what predictive coding does better, right? <laughs> actually, you know, this goes back to predictive coding, which is like predictive coding, again, to paint the cartoon is like this, your sensory data is coming into your thalamus, right? From your retina via the optic nerve and whatnot. And what predictive coding is doing is comparing not just one candidate model, but a whole bunch of them. In fact, my view is that it's actually very cleverly and efficiently comparing an exponential number of models. We could go into the details of that, but it's, it's effectively in non-exponential time, in linear time, uh, you know, this is where ideas from some prime networks and so on come in. It's comparing a whole bunch of models at the same time and seeing which one wins. And, you know, like this is a constant in like, you know, the work of the deep learning people, particularly the work that tries to be more powerful and like, you know, like the energy bit models and the contrasted divergence. And like, this is always because like, in order to generalize properly, I also need to know what it is that does not hold. And then they go into all these, like, you know, things that are so painful, like, you know, Monte Carlo, this, and like, I mean, and, and you will, we'll get another, I don't know, decades of that. Right. And it's like, you don't need to do that. You, you, what you need is like, you know, if you have this process of, of, of comparing, you know, even doesn't have to be exponential, but exponential is actually very useful. Like comparing, like, you know, your hundred best models. Not random, not small artificial, you know, digressions from the truth, you know, like again, Max Welling also has, I mean, and all this work is interesting, but I think it's kind of like doing something in a more difficult way than, than is necessary. Like, I mean, there's this very salient fact about the brain, right? That like all our models are feed forward, but in fact, the feedback connections outnumber them by an order of magnitude. I don't know if you know this, there's 10 times more connections going back than forward, right? It's not just that wow. we're not capturing what's going on. We're not capturing 10% of what's going on. And one theory of this, which I don't know if it's super real or as literally, is like, what are those feedback connections? They're precisely all those models, right? Your brain has all these models and, like, you, you know, feed forward this one reality, you know, and the errors in that reality, like, because this is a very, you know, clever multi-level process, like you're only propagating the errors, right? If your simplest model, quickest model of the world explains that it perfectly, it stops there, right? And you have, you know, a reaction that doesn't even go to your cortex, right? But, but so we have one reality going forward, you have an exponential number of models going back, right? And those are the high value targets. It's like your second best model, your third best, your fourth best, right? If your second best model turns out to be the best one, then its weight goes up as it should. So, so this you is actually, you know, like, you know, this whole thing that like, Jan really likes to like, have, you know. Uh, you know, you have the energy landscape and you pull down the energy of the good parts and, and up the energy of the bad parts, right? And that's how you learn, right? The way to do that is to always be comparing your best models, right? And again, you can have, this can be done even better than that I'm letting on because of this exponential aspect of this. And, and then the, the energy, you know, of, of, the, of the bad parts goes up, right? Because they, they, they fail to, to match the incoming data. 
This, I think, is their way to do things, both in terms of efficiency and in terms of generalizing better. So it's a win-win, and I don't know why everybody's doing it this way. So you must then have some sympathy for um, Jeff Hawkins' kind of thousand brains, yep. where it's like, hey, these cortical, you know, cortical columns are all doing kind of their own independent little uh, model generation. And then, and then there's a, a voting, you know, kind of scheme where out of these thousands of possible worlds, you know, they kind of converge on which ones they think are, are most likely. Uh, I, I, I use exactly the right words. I have some sympathy for Jeff Hawkins, uh, Jeff Hawkins, um, some sympathy. sympathy for his ideas. I meant to yeah, say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I think so, you know, like I read on intelligence, I haven't read, you know, the, uh, you know, the, 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 the more recent book, because I live through it and, you know, it didn't rise enough in, in my priority list, maybe mistakenly so, but, but I read on intelligence when it came out and I, I both liked it in some ways and didn't like it in others. And, you know, and I've heard him talk and, and, and since and whatnot. And, and I think, I mean, I understand what his stream of mind is and what I like about what he's doing is that, um, Interesting because, you know, his background is not in neuroscience. He's actually, you know, his criticism of the deep learning folks is very valid. Is that like, you guys say you're inspired by the brain, but that's BS. Right. Like Maybe. the point you just raised where we're doing feed forward and we've missed yeah. the nine X feedback. Yeah. And again, if you listen to Yad, what Yad says, right, I think it captures it well, which is we should be inspired by nature, but not too much, which from an engineering point of view is fine. But the thing about engineering in AI is that it'll only get us to local optimum. To get to the global optimum, I think what Jeff is doing is very honorable, and I wish him great success. He actually spent a lot of time talking to the neuroscientists, understanding the latest neuroscience, and trying to port that over into AI, you know, like more power to him. There should be thousands of people yeah. doing that. You know, there's more. He's not the only one, but we need more. Having said that, at the end of the day, unfortunately, what he managed to capture about what's going on was very small, and there are several things in his approach that I think are actually off base. Having said that, trying to understand what, I mean, here, I think, here, I think what I think are some key ideas that people have neglected. The unit of computation is not the neuron. It's the cortical column. Very good. You, you can't think in terms of the cortex. You have to think in terms of circuits that look through the cortex and the thalamus and the hippocampus. You will not figure this out if you don't do at least both of these things, right? Mm. And there's a few more like that. And so like, I'm 100% on board with that. Now, unfortunately, you know, this is no big strike against him because the problem is hard. At the end of the day, what he's been able, to, he hasn't been able to take these ideas very far. And ironically, you know, when it comes down to actually doing things, it winds up, what he's doing winds up not looking too different from what people have been yeah. doing in machine learning for a long time, which he also kind of often unfairly, you know, um, cartoonifies and says like, oh, this is all that you do. And that's, I mean, there's a lot of other people doing this. So, so I agree with that trust. I wish, you know, he'd made more progress, yeah. but I mean, I think literally, hmm. you know, skipping uh, deep learning right now, it is in the local on optimum. And I think that is a path to at least a deeper local optimum. That's, that's right. I mean, just quickly there, there are a couple of things I love about Jeff Hawkins. I mean, first of all, this idea of strong mo multimodality. So all of these cortical columns are informed by different sensory motor uh, circuits. And that's wonderful for robustness when you're getting signals from different sensory motor circuits. And also he overcomes the binding problem because they are, you know, th these, as Keith was saying, they're, they're voting and they're talking in complete objects, not in parts 
sorts of objects, which is really interesting. But um, the thing is, though, because you keep talking, I mean, Hawkins is um, an emergentist. You know, he, he thinks we should go down to the really low level and all of this magic stuff will happen. On the other side of the spectrum, the symbolists think that we should model uh, the brain or, you know, Marvin Minsky's conception, we should have a, a vision model. People like Jan Lacoon are kind of saying, OK, well, we're nearly there. We need to um, incorporate uh, causal, you know, like if we had the action chain and the models could do causal reasoning, then that would robustify things. And there's everything in between. The linguists are saying, well, you can't have the semantics of similarity. You need to have, you know, grounding and you need to have first order logic and so on. So there's a whole spectrum, isn't there? There is. And I mean, you've probably had this experience. Like when you talk to the symbolists, they're very, very hardcore about their position that like trying to look at things at the levels is, is ridiculous. When you talk to the emergencies, the emergencies, you also, the bottom up folks versus the top down is another way to look at this, right? You also have people who are like very strongly convinced that this is the way to go because there's all these things wrong with doing things at the symbolic level. And, 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 you know, what I think is that they're all correct and they are all wrong. It's, it's, it, it, the thing is that AI is a very hard problem. And this is a lot like, you know, the blind man and the elephant, right? It's like, to, you know, to start with the, with a symbolist approach, right? There's this famous thing called the physical symbol hypothesis that, that, you know, Newell and Simon enunciated, which is basically saying, you know, you'd, or like Mars levels, right? It's probably more familiar to people these days is we should do our research at that level of abstraction, ignoring the implementation. And honestly, there is a lot of merit to that because you will lose the forest for the trees if you don't keep that perspective in mind, right? And it is mathematically true that, you know, any symbol system, you know, it's Turing machines, right? Having said that, and I think this is kind of what's a little more subtle, and unfortunately the symbolists kind of didn't cotton on to, is that thinking about, so that it's not that the hypothesis is incorrect, it's correct, uh, and it's not that it's not useful, it is useful because it allows you to abstract a lot of details, but it leads you in the wrong direction. It leads you in the wrong direction because, for example, we're just talking about energy. And if you really look at how the brain works, the energy constraint is such a powerful force acting on everything. But if you do things at the physical symbol system, you don't even talk about energy. So you just missed out on a lot of real useful constraints for figuring out intelligence. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to shoot yourself in the foot like that? Right? So that's, you know, that's, that I think is one, one, one aspect. Now, when you go bottom up, right? I think, and again, in contravention to the physical symbol system hypothesis, these multi, so part of what makes this problem hard and makes people talk past each other is that it, it's not just that there's like the neural level and then there's like the, you know, symbolic level. There's a hundred levels here that we haven't figured out yet, right? For example, going from individual neurons to cortical columns to the circuits that, you know, involve the felt, right? We already know what some of these levels are, right? So the problem is that like, we have, there's all these levels that we haven't been talking about. And instead of like trying to do this dichotomy between A and B at the ends of the spectrum, we, we, we got to start populating this, right? But having said all that, and again, this is an intuition. I can't prove it to you. It's like what we have, computers are very different from brains in, in many regards, right? In computers, we cannot do enforce by design because it's convenient for us a very strong separation between the architecture and the operating system and the applications and whatnot, because otherwise we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to deal with it. But the brain isn't like that. In the brain, you still see a lot of the flavor of the lowest levels at the highest ones, which probably has a lot to do with the fact that the brain evolved and emerged and wasn't programmed by someone, right? So, so and again, the physical symbolism causes you to ignore that, which again is a big loss, right? 
I think a lot of how we behave, even at the conscious system two level, is directly related to the substrate, like the, the lowest levels. So I actually do think, you know, counter to a lot of the symbolists, that the lowest levels do have a lot to teach us about the, the, the highest levels. But, mm-hmm. yeah. right, if I, when I have to choose what research to do, right, I'm not super excited about going bottom up because it's such a long distance to the goal. Indeed. You're just going to spend your entire life on stuff that's going to get you absolutely closer, right? I think you need to like try to see, again, I agree with Mar in that regard. You need to, you know, understand things at the computational level to just have a handle on them, right? Otherwise, they're going to spin your wheels forever. But, uh, apparently, um, Lisa Feldman Barrett said that this, you know, Paul McLean's notion of the triune brain and this idea that there are old parts of the brain and new parts of the brain, uh, she said that was one of the biggest myths in, in all of science uh, because, of course, they've, they've co-evolved together. But um, we were just talking about, um, you know, Lacoon's um, assertion about, I mean, ev- everyone says causal representation learning is is going to be brilliant. Actually, Benjo talks about it as well. There are loads of folks actually trying to learn the um, the causal structure from observational data. Uh, what's your take just on, on that whole thing? I think causality is a very problematic word, right? Every time I hear the word causal, particularly coming from deep learning, it's one thing to hear the word causal coming from to the pearl, right? I know what that means exactly and what the ins and outs are, maybe the pros and the cons. But that is a very, you know, well-worked-out notion of causality. Uh, when I hear the word causal coming from deep learning people, I start to get nervous. Because I think a lot of what people are calling causal is, I mean, it's another one of those words, right? Uh, I think you could say, this is, not a, this is not quite what I think, but it's a good reference point, that causality is another one of those useful illusions. Space and time are useful illusions. Free will is a useful illusion. Causality is another one of those useful illusions, right? What, what is causality really, right? And then it's also, you know, like it's another one of those like context. Now, we're missing context. It's like one of those magic words of like everything that your learning system can do, right? You just, you know, sprinkle this causal pixie dust on it and then suddenly everything is brilliant, right? It, it ain't going to work out, right? <laughs> it's not, it's not going to work like that, right? So, so what do we, so let's start maybe the, the best, you know, way to this, like start from like, we have these learning engines that are great at discovering correlations, right? They could be even better, but let's just take that as a given. Like we're very good at discovering correlations right now. What is missing, right? First of all, is something missing? I do think that something is missing, right? But what is it that's missing, right? What's missing is that the goal of learning is not just to predict accurately. This is how you evaluate learning algorithms is predictive accuracy. You know, like this, this is amazing. This is a methodology that's gone this very far. But you have to realize that predicti- prediction is not the end goal. Prediction is subservient to action. The whole point of learning and predicting and the, and the generative model and, and all of that is to guide your action, right? And in order to guide my act, and this in your brain and in any AI system, any enforcement learning system, at the end of the day, the point is you, you want to take the best actions. That will maximize your reward, your fitness, whatever, right? And predictions are not enough to take actions. I have predictions obtained by observing the world, right? You have to be able to predict the results of your own actions. This is what causality is, right? Causality is being able to predict the effects of your actions, even if you haven't taken them before. That's the key. 
if I've taken actions before and gathered data, I can learn their effects by purely correlational learning, and then I don't need causal anything. But of course, most of the time in both nature and society and technology, it's like, you got to consider a space of actions and the, you know, the, the larger the space, the worse the problem gets, right? You, you know, you have more power, but you also have a bigger problem. It's like, you have to be able to predict the effects of actions and sequences of actions in particular, like sequences of moves in the game that you've never taken before, right? And now this is a very different ball of wax. You can't just do that by correlation, right? Another question is like, how do you learn that, right? And the way I look at, you know, things like you know, all of these theories of causality, right? Maybe it's a very machine learning way to look at it, is that like, these are inductive biases. A theory of causality is an inductive bias that lets you generalize from the results of actions that you have taken to the results of actions that you have not taken, right? This is all that causality was on. And by the way, there are formal theories that work like this, like, you know, like Phil David, for example, when a well-known Bayesian statistician, right, who's called, you know, with, 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 uh, with who they in the past, right? He says, we don't need any of this. All, you know, like statisticians are very resistant to causality, partly for historical reasons, partly for bad reasons, which, you know, who will tell you about, but, but I think partly, at least from the Bayesian statistician's point of view, it, I understand their resistance because it's like this. If I have decision theory, right, right, you know, my decisions are part of my space, right? And now what I'm doing is like, I'm conditioning on my actions. Right? I condition on the world's behavior. I learn my action. I predict the result, right? This is what reinforcement learners do. And if you can do that well, you don't need to talk about causality. You know, I think you do need to talk, or it's advantageous, convenient, you know, again, it's useful to talk about causality because you do want to focus on this problem of predicting the effects of actions that you haven't taken. But this is really all that causality is. It's not some magic <laughs> thing that like, you know, that, that, that solves all problems. And, and I think. Right. So it's important to do causal learning in this sense, but I also think it's important, also important to not lose our way doing all sorts of things that aren't going to solve the problem because, you know, this is the problem that you have to solve. I oftentimes think about causality in the context of this inherent asymmetry between, um, between both the past and the future and knowledge and control. And, and I love this quote from Shannon, which I heard many years ago, and it's really what set me off on this, on this line of thinking, which is he said, um, uh, we have knowledge of the past, but cannot control it. We can control the future, but we have no knowledge of it. Yeah. In fact, um, I sympathize with that thought so much that, you know, like there's this debate about what is time, right? Like physicists, for example, are very much into this. And usually they were not talking, well, it's, you know, it's entropy increasing and whatnot, which, which I find very unsatisfying. I actually think it's actually closer to the truth of like, why do we have this notion of time, right? It's like, this is the real distinction between the past and the future is between control and prediction, right? It's like, if you take everything, right, and separate it into the stuff that we know very well, but can't control and the stuff that we can't control, right? If you think about like convergent and divergent processes, when there's a divergent process is when we have the opportunity of control and that's why those things are in the future, right? So I actually think there's, you know, we're not, we're, 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 we're not, we're not there yet, but, but I think there's a lot, um, there's a lot of promise in, in, in thinking about things that way. We, we were looking at your Twitter earlier. Uh, you said, if information is conserved and the universe is finite, it's also cyclical and entropy, the entropy law is false. Be before yeah. you respond to explain that, though, I I'm curious, those tweets, do you just 
you're just kind of sitting around and you go, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to throw out a tweet about uh, entropy and its implications on the universe. Or did it, did it come from, what was the context that generated that tweet? I'm curious. No, uh, I'm glad you asked that question because I think some people have the wrong model of, of what I tweet and why. I don't throw stuff out that, that just occurred to me. Number one. I don't, I don't throw stuff out just to be pr provocative or to, you know, to say whatever, right? The things that are tweet that I tweet are either things that I believe in could be wrong or hypotheses that I think are plausible and deserve consideration. And usually behind every one of these tweets, there's actually a lot of thought. And you know, we, we can do a couple of examples. So you're like, and usually, you know, and then some people, if people follow up, you know, then, then I, then I, then I, I will often elaborate a little bit, right. But like any one of these tweets, like, you know, I mean, like I could write a whole article about it, except, you know, there's no time. So which, right? what's the category on this one? I'm really curious what, um, what the greater purpose was. Well, so the grid, I didn't say that there was a greater purpose, you know, there is a, I mean, there is a greater purpose, but like, I think when you're doing research, right, you, you think about things. And you follow your instinct about like, this is interesting because it might have important consequences. You might not know exactly what they are, right? I mean, there's some things that you do with a very concrete action purpose at the time, but you know, thinking about, you know, the nature of space time is not one of those. Although eventually that might even have bigger consequences than anything else. But like, what is behind a tweet like this one about entropy, right? Is, 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 um, I think that people have physicists have confused themselves about the entropy law for, you know, almost 200 years now, right? And, and we are all confused along with them, right? And, and this confusion is actually holding us back, right? And, and what is the confusion, right? I mean, we, we could go into more details about what, you know, the things that people have written about this thing, back to Boltzmann and Gibbs and whatnot, right? But, but let me give you a modern AI take on this, which is what's behind that tweet, right? And I, you know, I, I, I have other tweets related to this saying some of these things, but his, let me, let me tell you the second law without mentioning the word entropy, which I think is incredibly okay. enlightening, right? Okay. The universe is a Markov chain with a very, very large state space evolves step by step. And very importantly, it's a symmetric Markov chain. It's a symmetric Markov chain, meaning like the probability of transitioning from A to B is equal to the probability of transitioning from B to A for any two states A and B, right? I mean, this is the basic fact, right? Like of Newtonian mechanics and, you know, and, and, and quantum, you know, Hamiltonian unitary evolution, et cetera, et cetera, is that things are reversible, right? Like my probability of going from once, you know, I have, I'm just as likely to go from this state to that state as vice versa, right? This is the confusion with entropy is that then, but then macroscopically, this is not what you observe, right? But this is like, if we believe in the laws of physics as we understand them right now, which we could, you know, go into, but let's not right now, right? Then, then these probabilities are symmetric, right? So the universe is a Markov. So, so to summarize, the universe is a symmetric Markov chain, right? Therefore, it is like a basic piece of math, right? That's like, you know, completely trivial stats 101. It converges to the uniform distribution period. I mean, not period, there's various conditions of irreducibility and blah, blah, blah. But again, setting those technicalities, you know, there's some stuff there, but ignoring that, which is not relevant to this discussion. If you're, if you're, um, if you are a symmetric Markov chain, you converge to the uniform distribution because in detailed balance, right? The probability of being in a state A times 
the probability of transitioning it from A to B has to be the same as the reverse, right? If the transition probabilities are the same, then detail balance can only be satisfied if the probabilities are the same as well. It, it is just mathematical, right? It's like, you know, <laughs> there's nothing complicated about it. But what this means, yeah, I mean, think about it. So if the universe is asymmetric Markov chain, and we have very good reason to believe it is, right? Then it's going to converge to the uniform distribution, right? Okay. This is a cosmic statement. And entropy is just a measure of how close you are to the uniform distribution, nothing right. else, right? Entropy is increasing. It's not that entropy is increasing. Sure, you can frame things that way, but they framed it that way because they didn't know about Markov chains back then. They were invented by Andre Markov in 1913, long after all of this. If people had been studying this back when they were, and then there was this thing of like continuity, like people thinking continuous terms, but you can do all this with, with, you know, uh, with continuous, um, time as well, but let's, let's not do that. Right. So I, I was going to ask that, d does it change anything having a discrete Markov chain to represent states in the universe? I mean, of course it doesn't because the universe is not continuous, right? Continu continuity is just a convenient approximation to a discrete reality. Again, people are so confused about this, right? Like again, you know, I've, I've talked with many people about this, you know, physicists and non-physicists and, and, and people have, I mean. The I mean, I, th I think to be fair, it's an open question. It's, it's not known whether it's continuous or some underlying, you know, lattice or discrete thing. Right. I mean, fair enough. And by the way, this gets back to, so before we continue this, just to close the previous point, right. If the universe is discrete, right. Then there's only a finite number of states that it can cycle through. Right. Well, and just some a, point it's going to repeat. So to answer Tim, to answer your question directly, if, if it is continuous and you're dealing with continuous variables, what happens is you generalize to, you can, you'll get arbitrarily close to any particular state, you know, given enough time. So there's like this little C or whatever. So you'll, you'll right. cycle back like arbitrarily close to, um, to any state. Right. But that's precisely what never happens. And now you say that whether the universe is continuous or discrete is an open question. Well. In science, you know, all questions are always open, right? But let us... What I meant by that is there are people on both sides of that equation no, oh, that, no, no, that I, are, are, are adamant. That, absolutely. And I'm adamant that the universe is discrete. And let me tell you why, right? I did not come to this conclusion casually, right? And I, I could be wrong, right? Like I could change my mind tomorrow. Right now, you should prove me wrong, right? So like, but, 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 but here's, I think, what is the way to think about this like good scientists. Let us set aside all of that continuous math that, you know, we've had since Newton and that quantum mechanics is also full of whatnot. Like math is models. Models are convenient. And by the way, I'm not against continuity, infinitesimal, infinity. Again, they're incredibly convenient. Like I use them all the time. So I'm not against that. But if you want to get the fundamentals, right, you've got to look at observations, right? No one has ever or will ever make an observation of something infinitesimal or infinite. Observing something infinite is, 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 is impossible, right? So let's, you know, let's set that one aside for a second. Infinitesimal is a more interesting question, right? Like, has anyone ever measured infinitesimal small quantity? No, of course not, because, you know, things are quantized, right? Has anybody, and that, that people accept, right? It's like, there's the two-slit experiment and things like that. And, you know, like, and you see those pings one at a time, right? And then, I mean, I've actually done this, like, you have to go through and look at, like, all these observations that people make in particle detectors with Geiger counters, with like this, that, and the other, right? like, you know, like with photodetectors, your eye, your retina, rhodopsin, it's this protein that detects light. What do they do? They all do the same thing. They undergo a discrete state change. There is no continuity there. 
what does an atomic clock do, right? And then people accept this for, you know, quantities like, they're like, oh, but space and time, you don't know if they're continuous or this. It's like, have you measured the continuous infinitesimal piece of space or time, right? Let's think of time for just a second. Like an atomic clock, right, is an atom flipping discreetly back and forth between two states. Discreetly. So let right? me let me agree and with you. And you cannot yeah. measure a period of time that is short. There's like nothing happening between those. So at the most basic level, space, time, and all quantities are discrete. Like so, how can anybody believe otherwise? Well, let me agree with you on on that point. Let's posit that every observation ever made, you know, is is of finite precision, it's discrete, you know, these quantum events that occur. But here's the kind of remarkable thing, at least the remarkable thing to a lot of folks, including myself, is that get that part, however, those observations are described so well by these smooth, continuous models. And so then you get to this kind of deeper philosophical question, are, are they ontic? You know, are they real? Is there something actually real? Continuous? And I'd really like your take on that, which is, you know, how do we know that we're not just sitting on top of this ontic, this real underlying smooth thing, but all we're ever observing are discrete, you know, uh, aspects of it? Yes. I mean, so, and indeed, I think the, the more informed people, that is the argument that they will make, right? They will accept that all our measurements are discrete, right? But now here's the thing, like, what you're saying is an illusion. It's like the illusion that people have that there were no fractals. The, the challenge I would have there is the way in which it's not illusory is we don't actually have any discreetly defined mathematics that can reproduce the predictions of these continuous mathematics. Ah, no, very good, right? So you just hit on the crucial point, right? Now, but, but before we go to that, let me mention another thing, which is renormalization, right? So the beauty of continuous math, right? That goes back to Newton. And this is amazing, right? This is like one of the most amazing things ever is like, he posited these laws based on extremely low precision data. And then they were valid to 10 more orders of magnitude. This is mind boggling, right? And yeah, that, that's why we believe in continuous anything, right? This is extraordinary. Who could have predicted that? Right? It boggles the mind, right? But it has reached its limits. Quantum field theory is bedeviled by these infinities that you get by trying to sum over continuous, by trying to integrate over continuous things. Like, why do the path integrals keep diverging? Why do they need all these hacks? It's like something is going deeply, deeply wrong there, right? We've reached hmm. the limits. So why wouldn't we, right? I mean, come on, right? Would that, do you really think that would go on forever? We probably know that at the Planck scale, right? Measuring something more finely requires so much energy that it creates a black hole so the information doesn't get out. So yeah, sure. one way or another, that is dead. But to answer the really important point, right? I mean, Feynman famously said, right? And Feynman was the guy who created all of this path integral stuff and whatnot, right? And, 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 and he said, like, I get all these letters by people saying like, oh, but like, you know, is space really continuous? And, you know, all those complicated amplitudes, you need them. And, and his answer, which is completely uh, right, is like, Give me a better option. It's not that he believes deeply that space is continuous. It's that, mm. you know, the other options that we have do not work as well. And that is the reason, right? But I think we, and, 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 you know, I'm all for that, right? You know, we should use those things because it's what we have, but we shouldn't start to confuse them for fundamentals. And moreover, I mean, it's interesting because in the history of quantum mechanics, once people discovered this, there was a period where we were like, I mean, there were these statements by like, you know, I think Schrodinger and I say like, continuity is just like this horrendous, monstrous notion, like who could possibly believe such a thing, right? And, and I agree, but then they, they, they got stuck 
right? And we have to respect the fact that they got stuck, right? They really bumped into real difficulties. So you are right sure. that continuous math in a way is an amazingly powerful tool, but we shouldn't give up on doing better. And I'm not giving up on doing better. And you know, I'm, I have I'm some curious I'm, how you might do better. Yeah, yeah. I was about to ask that, which is, do you have a favorite? Do you have a favorite uh, discretized? or let's say a favorite direction that people are trying to pursue for, for discretized, you know, theories of everything. Is there, is there yeah. one that stands out to you as the most promising? No, I mean, of course. So, um, if you look at the state of physics today, right, there's the string theorists who, in my view, are like, you know, going completely in the wrong direction, you know, sorry. And then there's the loop quantum gravity folks who have the right idea, right? Okay. And they, you know, like they, I mean. Even the string theorists these days, you know, after, you know, 20 years of hard knocks or, or 30, pretty much everybody at this point believes that, yeah, space time is going to be discrete in some way. The question is how, right? But the, but the, but the, I mean, I, and if you come at this from like a computer scientist's point of view, you, I, I, you know, like string theory is physics for electrical engineers and loop quantum gravity is physics for computer scientists. It's like space mm. is a graph. There's relations. There's notes. And I'm like, you know, what's not to like about that, right? So is this kind of like the hypergraph models of, of Wolfram or No, that, that's, that's his own version, right? It's, it's, uh, it's in, I mean, Wolfram is one guy, right? We could talk about what, what he's been doing, which is interesting and also has its problems. But, you know, loop quantum graph, right? So there's this whole approach to, to, that goes back to, you know, to John Wheeler and, you know, like, it's many decades old, but like, it's trying to quantize gravity, right? And when you quantize gravity, inherently you quantize space-time because space-time is gravity, right? That's, that's what general relativity tells us, right? So they had been trying to quantize space-time, you know, for decades. And, and I agree with the general thing that they, and, you know, they have very complicated schemes to do this, overcomplicated, unfortunately, but again, mm -hmm. and then they wind up being like this continuous elements. And so even though I sympathize with that direction in general, they've also gotten stuck. And I don't think they have the answer. Now, I think there's an answer to be had that no one has had yet. And it may be coming, you know, like, you know, this may happen tomorrow and it'll be when one of the greatest, you know, revolutions, in, it'll be like quantum mechanics in the 20th century. So it's coming. Well, I'll tell you a funny comment I heard um, by uh, Roger Penrose, which was somebody was asking him about um, loop quantum gravity. And he said, I think they've, they've kind of gotten it backwards. Instead of trying to quantize gravity, we should be trying to figure out how to gravitize quantum mechanics. <laughs> so I, I don't know, that's, you know, I, I'm not sure which, very, which side of that coin I come down, but it's an interesting that, thought. That's a very Roger Penrose thing to say, because of course he's a, you know, you always understand people by, by, by in machine learning or physics or anything like what, what is deep down in them? What is the theory that they really that really resonates with them. And for him, it's general relativity. He's a minority among yeah. physicists. But to him, nothing exceeds the beauty and the power of general relativity. And quantum mechanics is like this ugly pile of hacks, which it is, but it works and it's more important. But, but actually, but my answer to that is that neither. I don't think you need to reduce gravity to quantum mechanics or quantum mechanics to gravity. You know, both, both are those, you know, paths into a wall. What you need to do is to reduce both to something deeper. And in fact, I think it's all, it all goes back to Newton. It's all Newton's fault, right? He gave us a lot, but he also got us into the, and the things that like relativity is, is a departure from, from Newtonian physics in one way. Quantum mechanics is a departure from Newtonian physics in another, right? But the problem is that there are a lot of things about Newtonian physics that are still wrong. 
in Newtonian physics and have been inherited by gravity and quantum mechanics, in particular what space-time is. And this is where I think we need to solve the problems. Like, we actually need to go back to Newton and overturn some of what he did to be able to reconcile, you know, uh, uh, quantum and gravity. And for example, right, um, what is time, right? There's this guy, Julian Barber, that has a theory of time that, 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 that to me is really perceptive. And what he did was like really go, and, and, and again, if you look at these things from machine learning point of view, it's quite fascinating. It's like, I'm going to put this in a way that he never would, but it's like time is a latent variable that we have induced to relate the things that we do observe. Exactly. And so is space. And so are fields and so are light. These are all latent variables. And what we need is a better set of latent variables. What we need is a better set of basis functions, right? Hmm. There's this whole thing like, oh, is it particles? Is it waves? No, those are both bad basis functions. We need a different, better set of basis functions. So I think we need to reduce space and time to something deeper. And that's when all of this will come together. Fantastic. Well, Professor Pedro Domingos, it's been an absolute honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me.